the law of God is necessary. It had an interim function. It defined sin. It pointed us to Christ. And praise God, by faith, we're now heirs of the promise of the covenant. You're listening to Galatians, a sermon series preached in the fall of 2019 at Shoreline Church. For more audio and theological content, visit thisisshoreline.com. In his book, The Grace Awakening, pastor and author Chuck Swindoll tells the true story of a missionary family who was forced out of missionary work because of all things peanut butter, peanut butter. Uh, This young family was assigned to serve in a part of the world where peanut butter was difficult to get. And so they arranged for friends back in the U.S. to send them through parcel, through package, uh, peanut butter uh, to their um, spot in the world so that they could enjoy peanut butter with their indigenous meals. What they didn't realize was that the other missionaries in that area had already decided that to really serve Jesus, that meant you gave up peanut butter. So you took up your cross to follow Jesus and you left peanut butter aside. Well, what ended up happening uh, was that um, they uh, thought that this would just be a matter of opinion and this was no big deal. Well, it was a very big deal. And so they had continued to receive the peanut butter shipments, not to flaunt it, but simply to enjoy it in the privacy of their own home. And eventually the peer pressure from the other missionaries to conform to what it meant to truly follow Jesus uh, and give up peanut butter, that pressure mounted. And so the disagreements, the pressure got so bad that eventually the young missionaries uh, gave up, they packed up their things, they left the mission field, disillusioned, and maybe a bit, as uh, uh, Chuck Swindoll says, maybe a bit cynical. What a sad story uh, of legalism, right? Now, we can make our assessments about this missionary couple giving up over that, and we could kind of make those armchair quarterback assessments, but the reason I bring up that story is that we could take peanut butter and take it out of the story and insert any really variety of things, and the story still makes sense. We could, for example, put in playing cards or dancing or the type of musical instruments that are allowed in worship, or the ratings of movies that are appropriate for Christians, or whether Christians can consume alcohol or not, or is this the right version of the Bible, or should we have a liturgical or a relaxed order of worship in our gathering? Uh, Even what color the carpet should be in the sanctuary. Thankfully, we don't have that problem here this morning because we meet in a gym. But invariably, we begin to see that legalism is at odds with the gospel. And the church in the region of Galatia was not immune to this. They allowed influences into their church that eventually thought and taught that the way to pleasing God, that the the actual way to uh, access or access God's pleasure was by returning to the bondage of the law. And so these people, we call them the Judaizers, were a group who believed and taught that you had to be circumcised to be saved, and thus you had to keep all of the law to be justified and then to be sanctified. But even today, 2,000 years later, uh, Christians are still puzzled about what do we do with the law. Uh, Even this week, there were multiple conversations that I didn't mean to have 
but that happened in and around the leadership and in and around our family and on the periphery of, well, what do Christians do with the law? And how much of the law should we keep? Do we toss out the law? Do we keep the law? And so uh, I want us to look at this text of Scripture and find out what the Bible says. And so the title of our sermon this morning is simply this, I fought the law. Does anyone know the rest of that? I fought the law and? All right, so we have some Clash fans here. Very good. So what do we do with the law? Some Christians say we need to obey all of the sum of the law in its entirety for us to please God. Other Christians would say, um, well, you know what? The law is no longer needed at all. And we're not under law, but we're under grace. So we should just unhitch from the Old Testament. And we should only read from the New Testament because the Old Testament represents law. And we should only follow the writings of Jesus and the Apostle. The apostles. This is a belief, by the way, if you want extra credit today, this is a belief known as antinomianism. And so uh, what do we do, though? What do we do with the law? Uh, what place does it have in the life of the believer? Is the law the, the main problem, or is there something more sinister going on that we want to avoid? So what we're going to see this morning is how the law fits into the plan of God for his people uh, and how we as the church can understand the law's rightful place in our lives. So if you're taking note, here's how we're going to break the rest of the chapter down. If you're taking notes, here's where we're going. The first three verses are the covenant. We're going to look at the covenant, the agreement, the promise. Then we're going to see in verses 19 through 21 the concession. And so there is a concession that we call the law. And then we see in verses 23 through 29 that the law really is a custodian and what that means. If those words don't work for you, we can do it this way. This took me so long this week, so I have to put the other set up there. There's also the offspring, the offspring, singular. There is the ordinance, and then the overseer. Uh, so that is where we're going today. Uh, that's kind of our breakdown. Let's begin in verse 15, and if you're taking note, we're going to look at the covenant or the offspring, starting in verse 15. Look at it with me. Paul says, to give a human example, brother. So please circle that phrase, a human example. And then he says, with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. So notice that Paul says, as we begin today, that this is a man-made covenant. It's a human example. And he's trying to use an analogy to help with the concepts that we've been learning for the last two or so weeks. These are, as I mentioned last week, some of the most difficult or in-depth theologically packed verses that Paul possibly writes with the exception of the book of Romans. So we have to, as I mentioned last week, begin today with the realization this is going to be a little bit of a tougher meal to work through. So we have to lean forward, not backward. We have to make sure we're paying attention and stop dreaming about who's going to win later in the day uh, in our sports competitions. Let's focus today on what he's saying. So Paul says, here's an example. Here's a human example. And he says, if we had a covenant, a man-made agreement, between two people, uh, then you can't add to it or change it. Here's what this would look like for us this morning. Last night we were at Josh and Aaron's wedding. It was great. Josh, yes, very cool. So yeah, you guys had the cake as well. It was a wonderful cake. Um, and he's our bass player, and so I got to enjoy. We all got to see this great ceremony. And there was a covenant made between two people. You, if you're married today, made a covenant. You made it a marriage agreement between two people. It can't be changed or altered. In other words, husbands, it's not right for you with your wife of 30 years later today to say, you know what, sweetie, I know I said I'd be faithful to you unto death, 
but I'm going to add an, a little addendum into the, our, our marriage covenant. I'm just going to, I'm going to change death. I'm going to be faithful to you. Instead of death, it's now disagreement. Okay, so when you disagree with me, then I can be unfaithful to you. Right? That's silly. No one would do that. And so Paul is saying, no, if human agreements can't be broken, how much more God's covenant? Verse 16 brings it home. Look at it with me. He says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. You want to circle that word offspring. Paul points out it does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. He says, and to your offspring. And then he tells us who that is, lest we wonder. He says, who is Christ? Okay. Circle that word offspring. It's the word seed. Some of your translations correctly say seed. Okay. This is not the plural form where I would say, I'm leaving an inheritance to my offspring. My son Aiden, who's 15. My daughter London, who is 12. No, it's not plural offspring. It's singular. The singular form meaning one person, one seed. And that person, according to Paul, is Jesus Christ. Back in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve first sinned, we call it the fall of man. There was a curse that was given, and God said to the serpent on the screen, what we call the Proto-Evangelium, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, some people hear that verse, and they think, okay, yes, that explains why me as a woman, why I'm so afraid of snakes. Uh, that has nothing to do with a woman's fear of snakes, and there's enmity between the two. We won't sh do any show of hands, but some ladies love snakes. Uh, and, you know, anyway, we're not, we're not going there. Um, but what he's essentially saying in, in Genesis 3, the curse has nothing to do with that. It's talking about Satan's hatred for the Messiah, for the Son of God, who would come from the Jewish nation. There would be perpetual enmity. Uh, God had said, he will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. Now, I've had both a heel injury and a head injury. The heel injury was from running. The head injury was on my bike um, going very fast, and I hit something in the road and flipped my bike and crashed my helmet. My helmet broke. I had blood everywhere. And so I can tell you just from my own personal experience, a head injury is much more severe than a heel injury. And so Satan struck Jesus on the cross, what we could call a heel injury, but when Jesus rose from the dead and at the moment of the crucifixion, Satan's head was forever crushed. Same event and yet two different injuries. One was a heel, one was a head. And so Jesus crushed Satan's head on the cross. And when sin was dealt with, Satan was dealt with. And one day, uh, ultimately, uh, all who are born of Adam, who stand condemned already, uh, will also face the same fate. So God told us all the way back in Genesis, the first book of the Bible, from the very beginning, that Jesus was going to come from the line of Adam and that he would deal Satan a severe blow. This is what we call the gospel beforehand, Genesis 3.15. So the promise to Abraham would be fully realized to, listen, not merely Jewish physical descendants of Abraham, but to one singular descendant, the seed, the offspring, singular Jesus Christ. And Paul is saying this took place way before the Mosaic law had been given. So you can't bring the law along to change the previous covenant, right? So in verse 17, Paul is making an argument from origins. He's saying, which came first? Was it the promise or was it the law? You could say that verse 16 is an important parenthesis uh, because he goes on to make uh, his main point. James Montgomery Boyce 
tells us why Paul's logic in this verse is so important. Here's what he says. He says, if the promises made to Abraham were made only to Abraham and his immediate descendants, like Isaac and Jacob, they might well be considered fulfilled even before the giving of the law. The law would simply inaugurate a new era in God's dealings with mankind. But the promises were not fulfilled in the period before the giving of the law, Paul argues. They were embodied in the coming Redeemer through whom the fullness of blessing was to come. And he says that Redeemer was Christ. Consequently, God's blessing of justification by grace through faith spans the ages. And the law, whatever else one might think of it, must be seen to have served only an interim function. In fact, I want you to write that down this morning if you're taking note so you can understand the meaning of the law. The first thing out of three that I want you to write down is that the law served an interim function. Will you please jot that down for me? The law served an interim function. We'll develop this further today, but that's a key point for us to understand. So look as we keep reading what Paul says now to get more specific. Stay with me. It's deep. Let's go here. Verse 17. Here's what Paul says. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God. So as to make the promise to Abraham void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, in other words, if the covenant of promise was annulled, it was done away with, and now it came through the law, Then he says it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Let me use the analogy of buying a home. So a lot of us understand this picture. So uh, I know several shoreliners who are buying a home and who are also trying to sell a home uh, currently. And it's a very stressful and a very financially fragile time. It's a moment where you're checking your phone constantly to check your email to see if there's any development or any change. And so if you're a seller... You, um, once the closing is done, right, and you're a seller, you are not worried that the buyer is suddenly going to call you and back out. You don't have to worry about that because the closing is done. It's over with. Uh, At that point, the deal is done. If you're the buyer, then after the closing, you don't have to fear that someone's going to swoop in and snatch your house out from under you. That could happen prior to that. But after the closing, the papers are signed and love it or, or list it, it's your home, right? And so certainly almost all of us who have gone to sell a house uh, before the closing have had potential buyers fall through. We get kind of excited, but until that closing is done, it could change. And all of us who have put in offers for a home have probably had someone who swooped in with cash or with a lowball offer and they grabbed the house before we were able to get it. And so we can kind of understand this analogy. But once the contract is signed, there cannot be a new contract that comes up later and annuls your closing. Uh, whichever contract comes first is the one that's legitimate. You guys follow me? Nod your head if you follow what I'm saying today. You follow me? Okay. So that seems to be Paul's argument. Uh, Cole says this, Judaizers might quote Moses, but Paul will quote Abraham. Let them quote law, he will quote promise. If they appeal to the centuries of tradition and the proud history of the law of Moses, he will appeal to the grander covenant with Abraham, older by centuries still. So the law came after the initial promise to Abraham. Before there was a Mosaic law, there was an Abrahamic covenant. And this covenant was an agreement by God to Abraham to bless all of the nations through Abraham's line, ultimately referring to Christ himself. So the law doesn't break the promise given to Abraham. Well, then what is the law there for? So let's look at the second section, verses 19 through 22, the concession. You guys still with me? The concession. Look at this with me, verse 19. Why then the law? It's the obvious question we're thinking in our minds right now. Well, why then the law? 
Paul says it was added because of transgressions until the offspring, that's Jesus, should come to whom the promise has been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, please highlight that phrase, it was added because of transgressions. Circle that, highlight that, underline it. If you're taking note, would you please write this second phrase down, the law served to define sin. Okay, it's important to get this, church. If the law wasn't given, then no one would truly know what sin was. We'd have no idea what it meant to obey God's law, what it meant to disobey. And in other words, in the garden, before God said, do not eat of the tree, they had no idea. If they were allowed, he said, you can eat of all the trees, but then you're not to eat of this tree. Now the law, now it's been um, clarified. And so Paul gives the Romans a similar train of thought in Romans chapter 4. Look at it on the screen, verses 13 through 15. Paul says, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, then faith is null and the promise is now void. See the backwards logic? So if it was through the law, then yeah, that annuls the original promise. For the law brings wrath... Notice this, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. We don't understand what sin is if we don't understand what it means to have a law. In other words, by definition, there can't be law breaking if there's no law to begin with, right? So again, in Romans chapter 5, Paul reiterates this idea, Romans 5.20. He says, now the law came in to increase the trespass. Now, we understand sin existed before the law. It was still there. Uh, it existed in the garden, but man did not truly recognize it until the law was given. Here's how I would illustrate this for us. Consider you're driving along, and you're just having a great day. The windows are down, and, and maybe you still have the air going, but you're just enjoying the day. It's a lovely day. And then you're going, I don't know, 95. You're just driving along 95 miles an hour. That sounds like Bradenton in some portions of Bradenton anyway. So, honest moment. You're going along 95, and all of a sudden you see that dreaded speed limit sign posted school zone, okay? And you're going along fine. It's the best day ever. School zone, 20 miles an hour. Now, you could look at that sign and have a variety of opinions. You could look at that sign and go, you know what, whatever, whatever sign. Don't judge me. I'm going to drive at my speed, right? You could say that. You could say, don't tell me how slow to drive. You could say, you know what, I'm a good driver. I don't need you to tell me how fast I should be going. In fact, that sign was most likely put there by people who just want my money anyway. In fact, how can we prove that that sign is real? It probably was evolved there after billions and billions of years. <laughs> or you could realize that sign was posted there for a reason. It was to protect you and the third grader crossing the street, right? It was put there for a reason. That sign simply communicates the law to you. It tells you what the boundaries of the law are and what it means to transgress the law. So the law was given so that we could get a definition of what sin was. We don't know we're breaking the speed limit until we see what the speed limit is, right? So the law of Moses reveals sin. It was added because of transgressions. Now, then we get to verse 19 and, we, and 20, and we go, okay, wait, should we just skip this? I mean, we teach verse by verse through the Bible. It'd be easier just to avoid these verses. But no, I, I want us to understand it. What does it mean about angels in verse 19? What is up with the angels? Well, there was a tradition that taught, and Acts 7.53 and Hebrews 2.2, 2, I'll give you those again, Acts 7.53, Hebrews 2.2, 2, both suggest 
that the law was delivered to the hands of Moses on Mount Sinai with the assistance of angels. So the intermediary or the mediator, you could say, with Moses and the law were angels. They mediated between man and God. But then we come to verse 20. What is verse 20? Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. James Montgomery Boyce called verse 20 maybe the most obscure verse in all of Galatians and perhaps the entire Bible. Uh, Another commentator said there are 250 different interpretations for verse 20. And then another commentator said, no, more like 300. (laughs) So we're going to walk through all 300 of those interpretations right now. (laughs) That joke's getting old, by the way. Uh, Boyce said this about this. He said, the general thought seems to be that the promise must be considered superior to the law because the law is two-sided. In other words, the law was mediated, and this means that man was a party to it. The promise, on the other hand, is unilateral. Man is not a party to it. Okay, what does that mean? We have the law where two parties come to an agreement. I agree to blessings or cursing. And we have the promise where only one person makes a promise, and the other just receives the blessing of the promise. Warren Wiersbe says a mediator stands between two parties and helps them to agree. But there was no need for a mediator in Abraham's case, since God was entering into a covenant of promise with him, not Abraham making a deal with God. God is one, therefore there was no need for a go-between, a mediator. You see, in Abraham's day, when you wanted to make an agreement, a covenant, a true two-party agreement, what they would do is they would cut an animal in half and they would lay it on the ground with one half of the animal on one side and the other half of the animal on the other side. If you're an animal lover, I'm sorry about that but there'd be a trail of blood in between the two halves of the animal. And what you would do is you would walk up halfway on your side of the dead animal and the other party would walk up their dead animal side and you'd meet in the middle, in effect saying, I will keep my end of the covenant if you keep your end of the covenant and now we've got an agreement. Personally, I like the modern handshake better. It's a little less bloody. And yet what happens in Genesis 15 Okay, go back and read Genesis 15 for homework. In Genesis 15, what you find is that God tells Abraham to cut the animal in half and then to lay it out. And then he says, now wait for me, and I'll come and I'll make the covenant with you. So Abraham does that. He cuts the animal, and he's waiting, and he's waiting, and he's waiting, and God doesn't show up. And so he keeps waiting, and he keeps waiting, and so eventually birds show up and start pecking at the meat. And so Abraham's kind of fighting the birds off like me at the beach with Jimmy John's and the seagulls. They're just fighting them off, fighting them off, fighting them off. And eventually, the waiting is so long that Abraham falls asleep. And yet, when he wakes up, he realizes that God has already come and burned the sacrifice and had moved all the way through the carcass. You see, God didn't meet Abraham halfway. Abram, I'm going to make my half of the bargain. You keep your half of the agreement, and then we're good. We're square. No, God kept all of it. It's not you do your part, I'll do my part. God did the entire thing, saying in effect, Abraham, this promise I'm giving you is not based upon you doing your part. I'm going to do it all. And so Paul is in effect saying, this is what God has done for us by faith. Your salvation, your blessings that God has poured out upon you, the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, that's God's doing. He didn't save you because you did your part. He saved you because, like in verse 18, God in his grace gave it to you. John Stott says this, such was God's promise. It was free and it was unconditional. As we might say, there were no strings attached. 
There was no works to do, no laws to obey, no merit to establish, no conditions to fulfill. God simply said, I will give you a seed, and to your seed I will give the land, and in your seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed. His promise was like a will, freely given the inheritance to a future generation. And like a human will, this divine promise is unalterable. It is still in force today, for it has never been rescinded. God does not make promises in order to break them. He has never annulled or modified his will. Isn't that awesome? So the promise came first. The promise was given by God, not agreed to by two parties like the law. And then we come to verse 21. The obvious next question that you'd be thinking is, well, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? And he says, certainly not. In other words, has the law contradicted that original promise? Does it stand against it? No. Paul says, uh, certainly not. The law itself is not evil, and it does not contradict the promise or the mind of God. Well, then the rest of verse 21, Paul says, For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. We know this. The law did not bring life, but it brought a curse. It came to reveal sin, to clarify what was transgression, and to punish those who disobeyed it. But in itself, by itself, it did not give anyone the power to actually keep it. That speed limit sign does not make your vehicle immediately slow down to keep the law. Uh, And so I will say this as a caveat. By keeping the law, one could do what the law requires and find life in the sense that you're protected from harm. And in a general way, you could avoid the dangers and extremes of lawless living, which would bring natural consequences in themselves. But what he's saying here is the law in itself does not bring eternal life. It only brings a deeper understanding of sin. Martin Luther said it this way, people foolish but wise in their own conceits jump to the conclusion, well, if the law does not justify, then it's good for nothing. And they just throw it out. He says, well, how about that? Because money does not justify, would you say that money is good for nothing? Because the eyes do not justify, would you have them taken out? Because the law does not justify, it does not follow that the, that the law is without value. So Paul says, no, certainly not. It's not going to break the promise. But then notice verse 22, he says, but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now follow me here. Follow with me the train of thought. I want you to first take note of that word imprisoned in verse 22. And this word in the Greek is similar to a concept of a fishnet. So I want you to imagine uh, just being caught into a net. One person said the idea here is that Scripture and its divine utterances on the universality and guilt of sin is conveyed as a jailer who shuts someone up in sin as in a prison. Another person said, it's as if the, lo- the, the lid closed in on us over a massive chest that we could not open or as prisoners in a dungeon. That seems to be the idea here. Why? Well, as Paul says, so that the promise of faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So you could say that those under law were confined or trapped, so to speak, until the glorious good news of redemption from the bondage of the law was announced in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is the seed in verse 19 to whom the promise had been made. And until he came, the law needed to be given because of sin. But it kind of kept you in that state, uh, you could say imprisoned or, or stuck. And then when the law came, uh, it, it brought that bondage until Christ came. And when Christ came, he liberated us. 
So let's look at this third idea as Paul begins to change that analogy a bit. He starts with this idea of imprisonment, but then he, he actually changes the application of it. So notice with me in verse 23, the custodian, the overseer, he says, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law. There's that idea, that concept, being held captive. But now he's going to broaden that, and you could say soften the analogy, soften the application. He says, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. There's that word again, imprisoned. But here's what I want us to do, church. I want us to, for a minute, just shift our minds away from being put in a jail cell and chained in a prison, caught in a fishnet, and now think more of a young person who's underage, not old enough to be out on their own. If we did a survey of all of you here today who live at home, who are under 18, if you're watching live, you're listening to the podcast, and you're under 18, many of you this morning would, a strong majority of you, would use the analogy of prison to describe life in mom and dad's house. Now, I don't think that's fair because we have some amazing Shoreliner parents who also were under 18 at one time, and we can agree it sometimes felt like prison, right? Well, your mom's sitting next to you, so don't say it. Uh, it was kind of like a fishnet, right? It smelt better, but okay. Notice the shift in language from verse 23, captive and imprisoned, to verse 24 in the idea of guardian. This is a subtle shift in Paul's mindset. He says, verse 24, so then the law was our guardian. He doesn't say jailer. So he's broadening the application here. He says, it was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you all are sons of God through faith. Please circle that word guardian. It's in the Greek, um, pedagogagos. I'm saying that totally wrong. But basically where we get the word um, pedagogue. Okay? Um, so literally, a pedagogue is a slave who leads a child to school. Uh, it would be a moral caretaker. Now, raise your hand this morning if you are a, uh, or ever have been a professional teacher. Can we see any of our professional teachers? Awesome. We love teachers. You guys are world changers. So thank you for being awesome. Um, but the idea of pedagogue is not exactly teacher. Some have translated it schoolmaster or teacher. But that's a little bit misleading because the pedagogue in ancient times wasn't just a teacher. The function of the pedagogue was actually a personal slave attendant that stayed with the son or daughter. They stayed with the child, the freeborn boy, from the time he left his nurse's care. And one reputable Bible teacher even refers to this word as the babysitter. And that is definitely a term that's not endearing to the rabbis. So the pedagogue did a couple different things. I just want to list them out for you. First of all, the pedagogue would teach the boy good manners. You could say that that is the rules of conduct. They taught the boy good manners. Secondly, the pedagogue would discipline the boy when he'd misbehave. So you could say that they brought punitive action against uh, disobedience. Thirdly, the pedagogue would actually take the boy or girl to school and wait in the waiting room until the boy finished his lesson. So they would stay with the boy and, and be alongside the boy. And finally, number four, they would quiz the boy on the way home from school often to remind him of what he had taught, had been taught. So the main objective of the pedagogue was not to keep an eye on someone and lock him in a room. The main idea was that they were to impose enough restraint upon the person's freedoms so that the boy could someday be trusted to use his freedom for good purpose. And so the pedagogue kept the boy in check until he came of age. Do you follow me? That was his function. 
And so do you hear what Paul is saying? He's saying that's what the law was. The law was a pedagogue. It was our tutor to bring us to Christ. It was a babysitter that held our hand until our parents got home and we eventually grew up. Once faith came, there was no longer a need to have our hands held by the guardian. We now have Christ to trust our lives to. It's inappropriate, is it not, to have a babysitter come to your house when your child has turned 18 and they're fully capable to care for themselves. It's no longer needed. It's no longer appropriate. They're of age. The guardian is no longer needed. So write this down, church. Thirdly, not only is the law an interim purpose function, not only is the law uh, something uh, that ultimately points us to what is in defined sin, but thirdly, it points us to Christ. It points us to Christ. And so verse 26 tells us that we are heirs according to the the promise, the offspring of Abraham. We are those who belong to Christ. And this idea helps set up the rest of the verses in chapter 3. The end of chapter 3, in case you didn't know, are some of the most misquoted verses and misunderstood verses in the Bible. So I want to look at these three remaining verses in chapter 3. Notice verse 27, 28, 29. Paul says this, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Now, let's dive into this. Verse 27 does not mean that being baptized saves you. Okay, He's saying that baptism is an outward sign of a union that exists already with Christ by faith. So in the same way that a soldier gets dressed in his or her fatigues and wearing these shows others that they're a soldier, that doesn't necessarily make them a soldier. So too, uh, the true Christian has been baptized into Christ and has put on Christ. So baptism doesn't make you a Christian any more than a non-soldier can put on a uniform. That doesn't make them now a true soldier. But all true soldiers have the uniform. And by the way, this is Veterans Day weekend, and we thank God uh, for those of you who are veterans and who have served our country. Thank you for your service. We appreciate it. We praise God for you. Amen. Amen. We never take those freedoms for granted. All who have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And so what he's saying here, uh, notice the train of thought with me. We'll put it on the screen. Notice what he's saying. He's saying, you are no longer children under a guardian because of faith, verse 25. So in Christ, you're all mature sons in the family of God because of faith, verse 26. And if you've been baptized, that means you're now fully matured in this family. You don't need the guardian anymore. The law doesn't need to be there holding your hand. You're now in Christ. So then in verse 28, he says, in this family, there are no levels of acceptance. We are all one body in Christ. And if thus we belong to Christ, we are then the true heirs alongside the seed, the offspring, Jesus Christ. Note with me verse 28, very misunderstood verse, and the three distinctions that the Judaizers would have maintained. If you notice verse 28, we see race, we see class, and we see gender. Paul is certainly reflecting back on his time as a Pharisee because the Pharisee would pray every morning this this prayer. Can you imagine praying this? I thank thee, O God, that I am a Jew, not a Gentile, that I am a man, not a woman, that I am a free man and not a slave. They would pray that every morning. But in Christ, Paul is saying these distinctions that a Jew would uphold as with his own pride, as acceptance to God, those are now removed. 
race, class, and gender, he says, do not hinder us from being included in this promise. So let's walk through each one of these. First, race. Paul says, neither Jew nor Gentile. So to come to Christ, what a wonderful truth this morning, that your race or ethnicity is never and no longer a hindrance. Those of us who are Gentiles, uh, we're not physical children of Abraham. We, do not, we did not have the law. We did not have the feast. We do not have the ordinances or the ceremonies. But see, in Christ, according to Ephesians 2, we're now with God's people. We are now one. The two are one. So there's no more hostility. No race this morning is exempt from salvation. We are all one in Christ. So you could say it this way. There, there is neither black nor white, Caucasian nor oriental. Your ethnicity is not a barrier to faith. Do you follow what he's saying here? It's not a barrier to faith. But then he says class. He says neither slave nor free. So whether you're a slave or not does not forbid you from being one with Christ. If, if there are some who were slaves reading this or some who were free, Paul says you're all a part of the same body. So if you're a manager today or you're a business owner versus you're the cashier, that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. We're, we're, being a slave will not keep you from being a part of the family of God. And as controversial as race and class are, it's gender in this verse that is so argued and fought over today. Paul says no male and female. Again, in keeping with this train of thought, this means that both men and women are included in Christ. We're both included. There's no exclusion of women. What a wonderful elevation and honoring of women that Christianity provides. He's saying that men are not more privileged than women any more than a Jew is over a Gentile or a free man over a slave. We're all part of the one body. Now, church, note with me what Paul's not saying. He did not say Jews are no longer Jews and Gentiles are no longer Gentiles. In fact, slaves don't exist anymore or free people. Uh, there's no more men and there's no more women. No, people's racial and genetic backgrounds don't get erased when they become Christians. So we're not trying to suppress someone's ethnicity like, oh, we don't want to know your ethnicity. Uh, no, we're just saying that ethnicity will not and should not hold you back from Christian fellowship. Uh, John Stott says it this way. When we say that Christ has abolished these distinctions, we mean that not that they do not exist, but that they no longer create any barriers to fellowship. So though some are slaves and some are free, those class distinctions are secondary. They're not important uh, in comparison to their unity in salvation in Christ. I mean, Paul still gave instructions, though, in Colossians 3 and 4 to slaves and to masters. That doesn't mean he's, uh, he's, he's for slavery. He's just saying, this is the difference between these. And Paul is not saying that gender is a race, that in Christ there are no women or men. He's saying that being a woman does not forbid you from being in the body of Christ. But we see throughout Scripture there's still distinct roles that are addressed to men, and there's distinct roles addressed to women. And in role and function, men and women are distinct. But as to acceptance, as to our standing before God, we are all united and brought together equally. Morris says this, he's not writing about a unity that comes about as a result of human achievement. He's saying that when people are saved by Jesus Christ, they are brought into a marvelous unity, a unity between the saved and the Savior, and a unity that binds together all the saved. Look at verse 29 as we close this section of Scripture. He says, and if you are Christ, or a better translation, since you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. You are heirs according to to promise. We are all Christ's, and thus we are joined to the seed of Abraham. We're heirs of the promise. 
And we'll learn more about this concept of sonship and adoption next week in chapter 4. In fact, I encourage you, if you don't do this, read ahead chapter 4, at least verses 1 through 11, as we dive into that next week. But before we close the exposition of God's Word today, I want to spend a few minutes applying this passage of Scripture for us this morning in 2019. So three points of application. If you're taking note, jot these down. Number one, we need to understand the purpose of the law today. This is a, a, a major issue, a major church history concern. People land on this differently and are very confused about it. This passage, passage shows us that the law was given an interim function to define sin and point us ahead to Christ. Now, many believers today are just confused. What do we do? Because the Bible does say in the Old Testament that we're not to put tattoo marks on our body. So what do we do with that? Do we not get tattoos? Well, the verse right before or after that says you're, you're to let a tree uh, grow within the first year of moving to an area. So are we, we're so stressed about the tattoo. What do we do about the, the, the tree verse? And so what do we do with the law? And so I want to apply this today so we understand the role of the law in our lives today as Christians. The law of God, you could say, and this is to way oversimplify, so I'm, this is not exhaustive, we don't have time, but, but in a very simple way, the law essentially had three uses on the screen. It had a civil use, it had a ceremonial use, and it had a sanctifying use, okay? We'll leave that up for a minute, Levi. The civil use was like a horse's bridle, and it was given to a rebellious and young nation who needed to be directed with tight reins, kind of like a baby. Some of you had new babies. Those babies are going to begin toddling. And when they toddle, if that's a verb, they're going to try to put things into electrical sockets that you'd prefer them not to, including their finger or a knife. And so we cover, we block those, and we safeguard the lower, I don't know, 25 inches of our home to protect and put a lot of restrictions on them. And so you could say that God's people as a nation were restricted. But this verse reminds us we're all children of Abraham by faith. We're adopted into his family. So those civil statutes at the beginning of Israel's nationality are not to be regarded anymore. Uh, and, and in other words, there, there used to be a law in Detroit that said there were to be no banana peels thrown on the streets for fear of injury to horses. No banana peels thrown. So would we say we need to enforce that law today? If you are caught throwing a banana peel in downtown Detroit, we're going to arrest you. Well, uh, at that time, it applied to a specific place and time. It's an infant nation. We're the people of God. The civil laws don't apply to us specifically. But then there's the ceremonial use of the law. The ceremonial use of the law includes the diets and the feasts and the restrictions on what made one unclean. And all of this was pointing ahead to the types and shadows of the Messiah, who didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. So thus, we don't have to keep the Feast of Tabernacles anymore because Jesus has tabernacled among men, right? Uh, we don't have to partake in the Passover feast as a way of keeping God's favor because Jesus himself is our paschal lamb. So Jesus fulfills the ceremonial law, and now in Christ, we're forgiven, we're cleansed, and we're justified. There's no more priestly mediation needed with the blood of bulls and goats on our behalf perpetually because the blood has once for all paid the penalty and Christ himself has fulfilled the law in this way. So the ceremonial law is not something like, oh, I'm unclean, so I'm unable to come to church today. No, you're, you're completely clean. Jesus said, you're already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. And, and so we need to know that. Thirdly, though, there's the sanctifying use. Uh, we could understand this as the law being similar to, I've mentioned often, a mirror or a flashlight. 
The Ten Commandments expose areas of sin in our lives and bring what's in darkness out into the light. And so when that happens, that leads to conviction and repentance and renewal. And so the law reveals our sin. That speed limit sign shows us that we did something wrong. And it drives us to Christ who bore the curse of the law for us, who sanctifies us by his spirit who dwells within us. So now what happens is as the law reveals sin and we repent of our sin, then we realize, oh, wow, I'm actually trusting Christ and I'm actually fulfilling the law. I'm obeying the law. Or we could say the spirit of Christ in the new man is not under law but under grace. And the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from that law. And so now I'm pleasing to him by just simply submitting my life to him. And thus I find that the Ten Commandments are fulfilled because the spirit of God is fulfilling them in me as a means of sanctification, not as a means of salvation. Does that make sense? So church, understand, we don't toss out the Old Testament and say, well, I don't need to ever read from the Old Testament. No, we see like Augustine said, the old is the new concealed and the new is the old revealed. Jesus fulfills the types and shadows. And in Christ, we submit to the spirit who fulfills the commands within us as we walk by faith. So that's the first point. Second point, if you're taking note, and the third point have to do with witnessing. What do we do with the law in our witness? Well, I would say this. I think it's important to mention this. When you witness, make sure you preach the law so that people understand sin. Imagine we share Christ and yet we leave out the wrath of God. We leave out the law of God. We leave out the need to repent. Earlier we talked about this speed limit uh, analogy. You're going 95 in the school zone. Now imagine that same analogy, same scenario, except you're oblivious to the speed limit. You didn't see the sign. All of a sudden you see the lights in the background. In fact, you were oblivious to the school. You were oblivious to the crossing guard and everything. But then the lights come on in your rear view. You pull over. The trooper pulls you over and he walks up to you and you're like, what is going on? I, I mean, hello, hi, officer. And he goes, hi there. I just want you to know, fellow citizen, that the police force loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And because of that, because we have a wonderful plan for your life, you are free to leave today. You're free to drive off with no penalty. I just want you to know there's no ticket. You're good to go. Thanks for being a good citizen. High five, right? And that's it. You would say, okay, thanks for wasting my life. Like, what was that about? You're, why'd you slow down and pull me over? You're messing with my life. You're messing with my day. Uh, the reality is, though, you transgressed the law. You were driving at a reckless speed in the school zone. You deserved a ticket. You were supposed to pay a penalty. You guys see? By not explaining that we had broken the law, then offering salvation and hope and grace uh, doesn't make any sense. It's empty. And so we must explain the law so people know there's a moral law, thus a moral law giver. And to transgress this law puts us at enmity with God. It makes us guilty and it makes us in need of saving. And so we often eliminate the law from our witnessing and we stop encouraging people to repent. We just invite them to add Jesus to their list of likes as if Jesus were a hobby or a friend you add on Facebook. Just add Jesus, please, I implore you, add Jesus to your friend list. And many people will say as they witness, what will you do with Jesus? And I would prefer to turn that around and say, what will Jesus do with you? He's Lord and we must repent and follow him. So be careful we don't preach the gospel and leave out the law. We preach the law so people understand sin. But remember, we're not teaching them the law so that they are forced to obey it. It's not to save them. Kevin DeYoung says salvation is not the reward for obedience, uh, but salvation is the reason for obedience. It's not the reward, it's the reason. And so that brings us to our third application point. When you witness, yes, preach the law so sin is understood, but preach the gospel so people understand grace. 
In other words, if all we do is expose people to their sin without showing them the riches of the glorious gospel in Christ, then what are we doing? We're saying, you need to save yourself, and we're throwing a barbell to a drowning man. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. So we must point people to the law, but then show them what Christ has done. Martin Luther said it this way, you may preach the law ever so fervently. If the preaching of the gospel does not accompany it, the law will never produce true conversion and heartfelt repentance. We do not mean to say that the preaching of the law is without value, but it only serves to bring home to us the wrath of God. The law bows a person down. It takes the gospel and the preaching of faith in Christ to raise and save a person. Do we need the Ten Commandments in courtrooms? Yes and amen. But don't forget the Ten Commandments are not the gospel. Uh, They are the law that reveals sin. Keeping the Ten Commandments won't save us. But grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, revealed in Scripture alone, is sufficient to save. God is sufficient to save. And so I want to invite our worship team forward as we close this passage of Scripture. Go ahead and close your Bibles. And we're going to be singing a song called By Faith. Great anthem uh, reminding us by faith we are heirs of the promise alongside Christ. I want to close with this story. I think sometimes even what we explain today can still be kind of like, well, yeah, but what about? It's still kind of confusing. And I heard this story a while ago, and I think I've shared it before at Shoreline, but this has been very helpful for me to understand my place as a Christian who's being sanctified, and the law can still be used in my sanctification. Uh, The story is that of a woman who was married to a perfectionist husband. And no matter what his wife did for him, it was never enough. So at the beginning of each day, he would make out actually a list of chores for her to do, and he'd hand them to her. Do this list. And at the end of each day, he would take the list, and he would scrutinize it, and he'd walk around and make sure she had done all that she was supposed to do. And the best compliment she ever received from her husband was a disinterested grunt if she finished everything. And what happened is she grew to hate her husband. She grew to despise him. And suddenly, one day, she found out that he had died unexpectedly, and she was embarrassed to admit that she was actually relieved. Within a few years of his death, she met a warm and loving man who was everything her former husband was not. And they fell deeply in love and became married. And every day they spent together to her seemed better than the day before. And one afternoon, she was cleaning out boxes in the attic and As the story goes, she found this crumpled piece of paper in a pile of boxes and she took it out and smoothed it out and realized this was one of the lists that her former husband used to make for her. And in spite of her chagrin, she couldn't help but read it again. And to her shock and amazement, she discovered that without even thinking about it, she was now doing for her new husband all of the things that she used to hate to do for her old husband. Her new husband had never once suggested that she do anything on the list, but she was doing them anyway because she loved him. You see, this remarkable thing takes place in the life of the believer who's being sanctified. As we now find that the, the burdens of the law are not so burdensome. We find that they're actually being fulfilled in us as we cling to Christ. First John 5, uh, the apostle of love says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. And by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. What a wonderful truth to know this morning. That the the law of God is necessary. It had an interim function. It defines sin. 
It pointed us to Christ. And praise God, by faith, we're now heirs of the promise of the covenant. Praise God for what he's done in Christ. Today, we can rest in his finished work on our behalf and trust our lives to him. Amen? I want to pray for us this morning as our heads are bowed. A prayer from the Valley of Vision. Puritan prayer calls this prayer deliverance. The prayer says this, O God of unsearchable greatness, before thee I am nothing but vanity, iniquity, and perishing. Sin has forfeited thy favor. It's stripped me of thy image. It's banished me from thy presence. It exposed me to the curse of the law, and I cannot deliver myself. I'm in despair. But a resource is found in thee, for without my desire thou didst devise an everlasting plan, honorable to thy perfections, and which angels desire to look into. And the word which announces all the glory of this goodness is near me. It invites me. It beseeches me. May I, a convinced and self-despairing sinner, find Jesus as the power unto salvation, his death the center of all relief and the source of all gospel blessings. May his shed blood make me more thankful for thy mercies, more humble under thy correction, more zealous in thy service, more watchful against temptation, more contented in my circumstances, and more useful to others. Lord, that's our prayer this morning, that we would rest in the finished work of Christ on our behalf, and we would not try to add the law to our list of reasons why we're saved. We're only saved by grace through faith in Christ's finished work. Thank you, Jesus, that you did the work on our behalf, and that as we sing this song, we can join together with the angels in celebration of who Christ is, and we can do that by faith and because of faith in what you've done. We love you, we worship you, and we thank you for this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Lakewood Ranch YMCA. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at calvaryshoreline.com. God bless you.